Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Andrew Mason. Good morning, everyone. Eric Berry. Howdy! Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and I forgot to ask him how to say his name. Mache. Mache. I was about to say that, but... This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code DEVCHAT at Sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code DEVCHAT at Sentry.io. And anyway, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Maciej Mansfeld. Good afternoon, everyone, or good morning, depending on where you are. Uh, I'm a software architect, and I work in castle.io. I'm the creator of a framework called Karafka, and recently it seems I'm hunting Ruby bugs. So do you want to just tell us really quickly what Karafka is? You said it's a framework, but is it a framework like Rails, or is it a framework more like Sinatra or Rhoda, or am I completely <laughs> off the mark? Well, just a bit. Uh, at the beginning, it was supposed to be uh, a gem for Rails, so you could easily consume messages from Kafka. But it turns out the Rails world uh, doesn't actually match uh, Kafka reality. So after a couple months of developing, it turned out to be a separate framework that you can just run standalone. This, for my case, in, in most of the things, it is running uh, as a standalone framework without any web UIs or, or anything like that. Now I've heard of Kafka, but I, I haven't really used it. Uh, do you want to just give us a quick rundown on what that is? Well, it depends. Uh, there are a couple definitions. Uh, for me, the, the most suitable one is distributed message log, which means that you can just send whatever you want into it and you can just consume it. I shouldn't say think like a Redis queues or uh, a bit like RabbitMQ. Some people will probably uh, hate me for that. But it is kind of similar in the basic principle that you have topics that you can think of them as equivalent of queues and you can just flush data there and you can consume. But it, what actually makes Kafka different is that, uh, first of all, you can consume messages with batches and it's one of the biggest advantages to this platform. And second of all, uh, you have strong ordering, which means that you can use you can uh, design systems that need to rely on the order, but can uh, use certain features of batch receiving and they can buffer and do other crazy things. And so yeah. you built a framework on top of it? Yeah, I built a framework for Ruby because Kafka is like a Java thing. But it, at the time, it was I think it was four or five years ago, Kafka was still in an early stage. I was working with a bunch of guys here in Krakow, Poland, and... Uh, We've looked for a, for a tool that we could use to uh, hook up our platform. We were basically building a monitoring tool for a, a bigger platform that was dealing with some serious amount of money. And we wanted to have like an external monitoring that would keep track of 
spendings and other things. And it turned out that uh, Kafka can be pretty pretty good for that. But the problem was that none of the people were, were experienced enough to do that, to, to use it directly, because there's always a certain overhead. If you take the low-level libraries, like programming in Iraq without Rails or, or any other web framework, it's just a lot of boilerplate. So I had a choice to either explain all of the things to them or just provide them with a gem file and tell them, you know, it, it actually looks like Rails, so you can use it like Rails, and you don't have to worry about anything. And this was the, I think it was 0.1 version. We, I, we throw it out in a couple of weeks. It turned out to work. Uh, but as I said, uh, the problem was that uh, Kafka world is not exactly the same as HTTP world. So in a couple months, it just evolved and it became its own framework, which is nice. There are many companies using it, uh, and I'm super happy about that. It's super nice to be pinged by some of my friends from Ruby community and uh, know that there are other people talking about it except me. Yeah, it sounds like it is the search kick for Elasticsearch, where search kick is just a API wrapper for this much larger entity, which is the Elasticsearch. So it looks like you built your own wrapper around the Kafka. Well, technically, there's one more layer. There's something called Ruby Kafka that is developed by Zendesk. Uh, I've her- okay. helped there a bit. It's a low-level driver, but the problem is uh, if you decide to go with it, which is totally fine, but you'll have to deal with things like concurrency, handling signals, uh, failovers, exceptions, all the things that your customers probably don't pay when you do the business logic. So it's just way more convenient to take a higher higher level library and plug it in, make it run with whatever you have, and just go do, doing other things. I'm not saying it's not fun, but <laughs> who wants to pay for that? So I have had a little bit of experience with Kafka, especially recently. And this was the first time I'd heard of your gem, but have you heard of Delivery Board Delivery Boy in race car? And if you have, what kind of makes your gem different than what they provide? Well, Delivery Boy is a messaging gem, which means that it allows you to send messages. And I have one called Waterdrop that is built on Delivery Boy, actually, because Delivery Boy is a library uh, from Zendesk as well. And I just wrapped it up, provided some more useful features and couple couple patches to how, how it works. And with Racecar, mm, I'm a contributor there as well. <laughs> I'm not really super in love in, with any of the tools. If anything better than Karavka emerges, I'll switch to it. But Karavka has a certain features, which is, uh, first of all, it is built on top of the dry libraries. And I try to validate every single settings and other things that you try to put which means that you shouldn't break anything if you just use Karavka. Second of all, it provides you with delayed messages parsing. It provides parsing. First of all, it parses the messages by default with JSON, but you can customize that. And with uh, Racecar, you need to build that by yourself. Second thing is that it gives you the possibility to work with messages before they are being parsed at all. 
which is really nice because then you can use either headers from Kafka, some sort of metadata, or just raw input to reject messages, which is quite often. Uh, I have systems that reject like 90 to 95% of messages, and I don't even have to parse the content. It has a better documentation, and it is just well-designed. It has, you know, it's really hard for me to compare it directly, because whichever you go with, you'll see a big benefits of batch processing and uh, stream processing and working with, uh, with Apache Kafka. And I don't have a, a really clear answer. I just prefer mine because it's, I feel it has a better API. I feel that developers don't have to understand too many things. And it just works. 99.99 something percent of the time it works. It handles fa failovers gracefully. Uh, so you can even try to migrate your clusters in between data centers and do crazy stuff like that. And it will keep running or it will try to recover. Yeah, it's. I would say it's a bit higher level than race car. And it's much older. It is actually much older than any of the Zendesk libraries because it was developed with a different driver under the hood called Phobos that is no longer maintained. And Karavka will switch uh, probably this year into uh, AppSignals library that is a wrapper around uh, C Kafka client, which is much faster and more stable because, well, Ruby, Ruby Kafka uh, from Zendesk has its own problems from time to time, like memory leaks, and it tends to lose messages with certain bugs, yeah, unacceptable things. And I also patch them from time to time, but... Uh, you know, if there's a library written in C, why not to use it? We, we, we do mostly MRI stuff. So. so when it comes to Kafka, I vaguely remember using this in a past company, but I wasn't the one that was interfacing with that. Can you, can you give some general use cases that maybe you're seeing or maybe uh, anybody here has seen before of why we would use Kafka? I just want to, to make it so that we're all on the same page. Yeah, 50K messages per second from a single Ruby process. And for me, it's like a stuff that I do on a daily basis because we have 5,000 requests per second in coming to Castle and the number is still growing. So we, we need to be able to process it fast enough to actually do stuff with it. And one of the best and really simple use cases is using uh, Kafka as a kind of way of normalizing the request stream and uh, a way to buffer the data because with systems that have a high volume of requests, for example, you don't always have to do updates, especially if you do Rails, you're used to just running save, but you can defer the update operation. So you can then patch it in memory because Kafka has a strong ordering and it allows you to pick a topic partition. Partition is like a part of a topic. So you can always, for example, redirect the data for a single user into a single topic partition. You can buffer that uh, in a time window and you can just flash all of that at once. And this is what it actually I was working uh, two weeks ago. We were able to reduce number of requests into our database like 100 times because we have five second window where we just buffer data and we just do it in memory and then we directly upsert it into PostgreSQL. So that's one of the the best and really simple use cases where you can use uh, Kafka efficiently. 
But they're not like, uh, for example, Redis, where it is a persistent data set, right? It, it, is it persistent? It is persistent. But with Redis, you're, as far as I remember, you're able to update things. With Kafka, Kafka is uh, immutable event stream. So whatever you put there, unless you have retency policies like keep data for two weeks or something like that, it will just remain forever, which is really nice because then you can replay log, which means you can, that you can get back in history to a certain state where your data was, for example, one hour ago, and just reprocess everything if your uh, application logic had some bugs or anything like that. Where I've seen it used is in a distributed system where one of your apps needs data that lives primarily in another application. So sending those messages across when like updates or deletes and things like that happen. Well, if you do uh, event-driven architecture, then it's really, really good choice. Because if you combine a possibility to batch process data with the uh, the actual usage of event-driven architecture, you can get a really well-designed bigger systems. Uh, and I, I find that when I when I talk about uh, Kafka and Karavka, I find that concept it's it's one of the hardest for Rails people to grasp. It does is that actually you should just broadcast what happened and tell other systems what you've done, not tell them what they should do. Because then you can just, just consume data. Let's say, oh, a new user signed in. So you can just you can take this user data and take only the details that you need and use them within a different app and then just store only the data you, you really need in this app. And yeah, you, you can't do that if you need if you if you're unable to live with eventual consistency, but if you're okay with eventual consistency, it allows you to, to scale not only the system. In terms of performance or, or speed of development, but also in terms of like more people on, on board and being able to work concurrently without uh, stumbling upon each other. And I think, I think the contrast between this and, say, the traditional queue is that in the traditional queue, what you would do is you would, let's say you update a record in your application. Then what you do is you go to each queue and you say, okay, go update the report in the reports queue. You tell it to notify the other users that care about that record in the notifications queue, et cetera, et cetera. And in this case, with Kafka, what you would do is you would say, here's an update event. We updated this this thing. And then um, you would have processors on the other end that would, and one would say, oh, there's an update to this thing. That means I need to go update the report. And the other one would say, okay, I got an update event on this. You know, And so they all react to the same event instead of having to go to each queue and telling each queue, each worker, what it has to do. The worker picks up the event and then knows what it has to do with it. It knows what its job is. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's actually like our discussion. I'm talking to you guys, and I hope you listen, but I don't expect that, right? So it's up to you to focus and listen or just do whatever you want. It's it just a bit of a mind shift. But when you go beyond that, you actually build really isolated systems that just use uh, Kafka as a message bus to notify whoever wants to listen what are what they did. And because it's immutable, you're actually unable to update things, which has some downside as well, because if you break something by sending events, you need to fix it by sending more events with more updates. But you, you should design systems to handle 
problems like that. And if you do that, you end up with a lot of small systems that do really, really small part of your bigger up business logic in isolation. And that's awesome because you can that, then you can scale the independently and do other things. I mean, to give you an example, we have, yeah, as I, as I said, it, it depends on the time of the day and week and other factors, but in between three to 5,000 requests per second uh, to our HTTP endpoints. And one of our con- components built on top of uh, Karafka, there's a single Ruby process that is just consuming all of that. And it still has a, a lot of power beyond uh, the amount of data that it's working with. So it is kind of kind of different, uh, yeah, approach towards solving certain problems. Do you find that uh, Rubyists tend to think that this maybe isn't a solution for Ruby, or do you, when you release this, do you do you find that Ruby might be an inhibitor to proper usage of Kafka versus other languages that might better support it? Ruby or Rails. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you know what I mean. So either one. But it's never-ending discussion about certain things that are wrong with Rails. And if you want me to compare with different languages, some of them just have different history of, uh, I would call it heavy engineering, like Java. They, they have certain solutions and certain libraries built in. So once you, you actually start learning, maybe not the language, but the way you should design bigger systems. Things like immutability, event streams, working with batches, it is kind of natural to you. Like, yeah, the event-driven architecture, for example. And with Rails, with, with especially with Rails, I'm not talking about Ruby because we have a great community around Eventide or dry RP libraries that are really good as well. But with, let's call it vanilla Rails, there is a certain problem that is mostly fo- focused around Active Record that just blocks certain things. I've seen libraries build on top of Karafka that hook up with callbacks to Active Record models and then broadcast changes on AfterSafe. And uh, it is a complete, well, no, that I wouldn't say it, but it's a misuse. Yeah. Yep. It's a big misuse. I can mis- see it being useful if you want to build something like uh, New Relic or Scout where you were doing application monitoring events, log aggregations, and stuff like that, I wouldn't be throwing that all of that to a Rails application with a MySQL or Postgres backend. I think that would just kind of kill the server, but because you don't need a lot of the mutations of records. You know, once you get a log from or a metric from a server, then it's pretty much there. And then now you can build a Ruby on Rails application to consume that. But I think the initial taking in the data, you know, something like Kafka would be a better route. Well, as long as you don't need to reply, right? Yeah. Because uh, that's one of the, actually one of the biggest problems for uh, Ruby plus Kafka, that if you, uh, you can delegate messages, but if you need to generate a reply, then it's still a bit of overhead because you need to do get to the cache or to the database, do some basic calculation. But with a good design, you can still offload a lot of it or you can do it async and then, you know, get the data in a given threshold or not at all and generate some some sort of reply. Yeah, but if you're more about collecting data, Kafka is great for normalizing streams, buffering, uh, making sure that 
your requests are being accepted and that the data is being stored. And it can actually save you some money because if you're if you have a, a big enough window for processing, let's say a couple hours, if you have big random data spikes, well, the data will just buffer in Kafka. You're ha- you'll have a bit of a lag on processing, but in an hour or two, everything will be up to date. So you won't have to spit up more workers or EC2 instances to just consume data. So when you were developing the framework, did you run into any problems with the Ruby core or anything like that, that kind of was a stumbling block? Well, I've run up upon certain problems that were already solved by Mike uh, from Sidekick, which is really good because I just copy-pasted his, uh, his ideas on problems with deadlocks, upon way how, how closing a process should happen with instrumentation and other things like that. So uh, kudos to Mike for that, definitely. I didn't find any problems with Ruby. I found more problems with Rails, aka autoloading, other things that kind of don't match the, the way Kafka process should work. Uh, but yeah, I've just fixed them. I mean, I didn't fix the Rails problems. I just found a way to make it work with, with Kafka. It's just trial and error. And usually, uh, it, usually it works after a while. I found more problems with people and explaining them things, how they can use things. Uh, because Ruby programmers and in particular Rails programmers, they're, they are oriented about around active records. So they are used to work with entities. They create a user. Then if they have a batch of something, they'll just run an each loop and they will do something with it. Then they will do something else and so on. But it, all of it happens within single uh, active record entities, like, I don't know, users, blog posts, whatever, whatever they have. And here I need to explain them that they can actually do all of that in memory and then they can combine results and do something with the whole combined result set that they can do so many things in memory without actually having to go into the database for anything. And that's, uh, that is kind of different from how typical Rails systems are being built. Now, you said that you could do everything in memory. Could you give maybe a little more of a concrete example of that? Well, maybe not everything. Well, not everything, but for what you're speaking of specifically. All of it comes down to a single feature of Kafka that is strong ordering within single partition topic. And it also depends how you design topics. But in general, because you get batches and you know that you have all of the data in a certain order, that is exactly the same as the order you've uh, sent the messages into Kafka. You can either skip or combine results that you already had. So for example, for many systems, you don't even have to have a database uh, because you can use the next feature of Kafka that Kafka is supporting that is manual offset management that works kind of like Comet, which means that you start reading from a certain point of time you get all of the data that you need to have. And if your process dies, it will start from the same place. So you can get a lot of data. You can build a really complex things in memory using Ruby hash, for example, or, or, or just an array. 
And once you've stored this final result, only then you can just commit the offset, which kind of marks the place where you finished. And you can just continue living on. And it gives you one more benefit. You can replace systems without worrying about the downtime because they work async. So you can just take it down for five minutes, do whatever you need to do with it, upgrade, update jams, fix some business logic, you put it back and it just catches up with all of the data in a couple of minutes or a couple of seconds, depending on how big system you have. So you use the term strong ordering. Can you define that real quick? Well, long story short, if you send data to Kafka, you'll receive it in the same order within a single partition of a single topic. It doesn't work in between topics, nor in, in between partitions. So you need to be really, really aware of what you're doing and how you send data to Kafka. So you end up within a proper order. One problem that I see with many systems designed uh, around Kafka is bad topic naming. So to give you an example, let's say we have a user. Uh, usually we have a user somewhere, in, especially in Rails systems. Uh, we have a single entity called users. So people that, that just start playing with Kafka, they'll create a couple topics. They'll create a topic called users created or something like that. And then users updated and users deleted, which is really nice because then they can just have like a dedicated logic towards single type of operation. You could, they can have consumer instances that act more or less like uh, controllers. So they receive data and they do something with it. But the problem is that you might actually end up receiving a user deleted before user was even created because there is no ordering in between topics. So most of the time, it's just better to have uh, a topic called users or user changes and actually record all of the things that happen to the user into this single topic, making sure that single user changes always hit single partition. And then you can just get it as a big array, apply all of, all of the things. Uh, and yeah, and you're good. And you never end up trying to delete non-existing user. That, and that happened to me at least a couple of times. Well, not for users, but yeah. So what happens, I guess, if if my system gets a Kafka message and it's for a certain user that doesn't end up in, that's not in my database. What, how is the error handling and stuff like that kind of, what, what goes on down there? Well, it's up to you. I mean, it's up to your uh, system. You should expect that if you did better job designing topics, then it will just stop. I mean, Karavka's default way of handling unexpected things is to just stop processing because I cannot skip messages like, like Sidekick does because I need to rely on this on the ordering, right? So if I have a message that I am unable to process, I need to stop because uh, I cannot process next messages until I handle this one, because there might be a part of a business logic that actually relies on order of messages. Some systems don't, don't rely on the ordering, then it's fine, uh, but it's up to you to implement it the way you want. I'll just back off for, I think, a second, then a 10 seconds, then a minute or something like that. I will retry from time to time to handle cases like databases being down or uh, unreachable endpoints with HTTP APIs or something like that. But I will never move forward if a message is not being processed. Is there a way to get around that then? Yeah, back in the rescue. 
and do that? whatever you want. Yeah, you, you just catch the any single error from within your app. Oh, I got you. You know, begin, rescue, ignore, and go with the flow. But I wouldn't recommend that. I would just recommend yeah, understanding how how yeah systems operate and what certain uh, exceptions mean, especially if they come from the, your app itself. Then you you kind of shouldn't rely on some external framework dealing with the errors you're having. But yeah, we do it all the time with Sidekick. So <laughs> no, we, we do it, but don't do it. Do as I say, not as I do. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, I do that to my kids all the time. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding, right? Anyway, we brought you to talk about Karafka, but we also brought you to talk about Ruby 2.6 errors. And, and I'm curious, you know, do any of these errors that you're uh, highlighting come out of your work on Karafka? No. <laughs> they come uh, from uh, my work on a not yet released open source system that I'm working. Long story short, I'm really tired of having development dependencies in my projects. So I've built a system that is actually encapsulating all of the common uh, libraries that we use on a daily development base, like Rubocop, Yard, documentation checkers, some security checkers and stuff like that into a single uh, Docker container that you can run for any app and you can just get the results and they're being sent into nice UI. And I have systems with like tens of thousands of errors. And uh, that's why that's how I spotted the infamous Ruby 2.6.0 HTTP error. I didn't get a message body that I would expect some of the characters would be gone. And it wouldn't happen with a small payload. It wouldn't happen with my attempts to do a local reproduction. It would only happen over the internet. So I started digging around. So you said you were basically putting a bunch of gems that you commonly use in Docker containers. Can you talk for a second about how that works? Because I'm super interested in Docker right now. Well, long story short, as I said, I don't like having too many gems because then I have conflicts with them. They lock their own dependencies that, that can lock my dependencies, things like that. So I took all of the linters, all of the libraries that I use on a daily basis. I've created a gem that encapsulates all of this, uh, all of these libraries. I've made it work with external project because usually... The problem is that you need to have it embedded into your app so you can just run it from like a rake task or something like that. I have it outside, but it still checks the project I want. I've built a, a Docker container using the, the Docker provided Ruby images so you can just execute it on any any project you have. As long as you have a Docker, you can just run a single line Docker command and it will just check the project and give you the results. And what was the name of this gem? It's not yet released. I'm going to release it on uh, in April during Ruby Kaigi. So uh, I won't tell you yet. I can send you a private link and invitation, but it's not public yet. I would be interested in that if you don't mind. We should just make up names for it on the podcast. No, it has a name. I'm sure it does. I was just having fun. Anyway. Yeah. No, it will be released. As I said, I, I will be talking at Ruby, at Ruby Kaigi about single part of this system that is dedicated to detecting typo squatting attack uh, attempts towards Ruby gems. And uh, that's, uh, that's when I'm planning to make everything open source and public. So you mentioned the HTTP error in Ruby 2.6. Is there anything else you've come across? 
Yeah, my fa- favorite error from Ruby that is actually making Ruby not obey TCP timeouts. That's my favorite bug that was found by me and my friend Philip from Castle. And it's super interesting bug and no one wants to reply to it on on uh, Ruby bugs tracker. It actually it comes down to a single problem. If you have a domain that is being resolved into multiple IP addresses, which is totally legit and and normal, and if you set a TCP timeout for a connection, let's say 10 milliseconds, it it can actually go up to 100 or something like that. So if you have a time-sensitive systems that need to time out when they are unable to do certain actions, then, well, you get a big surprise after a couple of days and after running a production. I'm trying to find that link to the issue right now. Can you, you send it over? I'm interested to read this. Yeah, it's 14997 on RubyLang. Socket connect timeout exceeds the timeout value. Long story short, so let, let's say you do an HTTP request and uh, you set a timeout to half a second and then after five seconds, it's still there, still hanging. So actually, what is really funny is that I've suggested the fix. I've talked about it with Aaron uh, when I have uh, met him in, in Moscow last year. We even came up with an idea on how to fix it. I can fix it, but it's been half a year since no one replied to me. So I, I I won't fix it without being sure it is actually the way it's supposed to work because it would be a waste of my time and probably a waste of Ruby core team time, but uh, still half a year without an answer. How do you find these bugs? I mean, is this just something you stumbled across while working on you know the stuff that you mentioned before? Or are, well, are you out there actually doing a security audit of some kind? Because you mentioned no. that you have a dependent, you don't like dependencies, so I'm, I'm kind of curious. Well, it depends on the bug. The HTTP bug was because I was just sending a lot of data and I didn't know what type of data it is because it, it could be just uh, ASCII characters, but also UTF-8 or any other weird encoding. And uh, when I aggregate a lot of uh, reports out of my soon-to-be-released open-source Docker container, blah, 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 things, I end up with a payload of couple megabytes or more and then i just send it and then i i saw at rollbar that i actually get 400 responses which means like invalid body or something in rails and i was really curious what the hell is going on because it would only happen for certain requests so my first uh, thought was that oh i've probably update upgraded puma or something and it's misbehaving so yeah i downgraded back and it wasn't it still wasn't working so my second guess was that I'm doing something wrong with the data because usually you don't blame the language. Uh, I've spent at least a day trying to reproduce it locally, and it turns out it's way more complicated to do that locally because then Ruby buffers are being used in a bit different way. So I would have to have a really big payload. And only when I was able to get a certain payload, I was trying to low make it smaller, but still reproducible. And then I've noticed that, oh, I have, a, I have non-ASCII characters in my really, really, really long JSON string. Let's try out to remove them. And then it was working. So I still didn't blame Rails uh, Ruby. I've blamed Faraday library. So what I tried to do, I've just saved the payload into a file and I've started sending it with CURL, CURL and it was working. 
Uh, so I was like 95% sure, okay, something is wrong with Faraday. So if something is wrong with Faraday, you can just go with the net HTTP library that is from Ruby. And then it wasn't working. So that was the, the moment after two days, after spending whole weekend, that was the moment I started looking back into Ruby. And uh, my impression on, on the way the, the Ruby TCP library is, uh, I, I wouldn't say designed, but at least documented, made me think that, okay, maybe that, that's something's wrong there. And I've started looking around into uh, open issues and things like that. And I found a single report without any replies that documents a case where if you send kanji characters in a really, really, really long string, you get an exception. I didn't get an exception. Some of the characters were gone, but it seemed kind of similar. And then I've reminded myself of a different, but really similar issue that happened with Ruby. I think it was 1.9 or 1.8, at least 80 years ago, where the core team wouldn't use byte size for determining uh, string size, but they, they would use character size. And it was exactly that. Our current issue is more complex, but it, it, it goes into not counting bytes in the proper way. So if you, if you don't do that, you may, might end up uh, eating your own letters at the end of the string. Yeah, I love it when I go to install a new Ruby version and it no longer works. My old version still does, but my current one doesn't. Like uh, with my test scenarios, when I was using any version of Ruby 2.4 or earlier, all my RSpec tests were running and completing. Now with Ruby 2.5 and 2.6, I always get a memalloc error where oh, the pointer gosh. cannot be free. <laughs> and if you've never tried debugging one of those, like the first few days, you're like, what the heck do I do? Where do I even start? So I'm still kind of at that where do I even start phase. But the funny thing is, if I push up the code to my GitLab runner using Ruby 2.6, it works. So it has to be something on my local OS. So I even tried blowing up the whole computer and reinstalling everything from fresh. And no, still, still get the MMALIC error. So, you know, trying to figure out who is responsible for the error or the issue that I'm receiving. Most likely, it's something that I've done, but... Regardless, it's one of those things where if you can figure out where it's at, you know, really good job to you because that cannot always be the most transparent thing. That's true. You can also try blaming your colleagues from work, for example. Usually it doesn't work, but it's a lot of fun. And uh, this is how the, the second bug that I reported, the one for 997 was found. Uh, I just designed a system that was talking with different systems over TCP with a 20 millisecond timeout. And 20 milliseconds was as much as we can spend on this single operation. We are time-based sensitive company, so sometimes we just don't have more time than 10 milliseconds or 20 milliseconds. And we just continue without getting certain answers from, from certain systems. And everything was working. It was, it was battle-tested locally. It was running on... Uh, like semi-staging for a while, and then we just deployed it on the AWS, and then, and then it went down. And uh, our client that was trying to communicate with it, it, it should stop after 20 milliseconds. 
it was stopping after 100 something and it was actually blocking other systems and yeah so i blamed my friend from work philip <laughs> i told him he's a really bad devops and that probably something he, he did then i blamed aws uh load balancer on keeping the connection and only then we started blaming ruby and it turns out it was that yeah so that 20 milliseconds i mean to me i've never had to do something where it was that small of a time frame is that from the beginning of the request to the end because i mean sometimes a dns lookup could take three or four milliseconds and that eats up you know, 25% of your allotted time right there. So do you use direct IP addresses or anything like that? Well, first of all, it is not counted in uh, current Ruby 2.6 nor any previous implementation, the DNS resolve. So if you set 100 milliseconds as a limit and the DNS is really slow and it takes one second to be resolved, then you have one second plus whatever you've, you've set. So okay. yeah, if you, if you don't use direct IP addresses, and we mostly don't, then uh, this also needs to be taken into consideration. And it's not in Ruby. And the actual limit you set, like any limit you set for TCP operations, apply into a single TCP connection, which means that if you have a domain that is being resolved to five addresses and none of them is uh, responding yet, it is keeping a connection because it hits, for example, a load balancer that is hoping that something on the other side will wake up or start working. Uh, you end up multiplying your timeout by five. And it's crazy because oh. you, you've said 100 milliseconds, you need to stop there. But then half, half a second later, uh, it's still running. And is there any way to use something like Action Controller Live to keep a c direct connection open? You know, something like that. So you can kind of skip a lot of those initial jumps or hops. Well, yes and no. First of all, I'm talking about the TCP, raw TCP mm -hmm. in Ruby. And I usually talk in between systems, uh, not system and browser. So I tend to use raw TCP connections to just with a custom TCP-based protocol that saves me a couple of characters or a bit of HTTP overhead because there's like header you need to parse, body you need to parse, rack that brings certain things into the table. And with raw TCP, you can just set up a server and you can set up a client and you can just start talking. You can have a persistent TCP connection that can actually help. But the problem is if you have, uh, let's say like within a cluster, a rebalancing or a couple machines go down and new ones are being started, you need to resolve the DNS again and then it might happen again. So for me, it is kind of unacceptable to have a timeout and then to have a language that does not obey does not obey this time out, but uh, life goes on. Well, what we do now, we actually don't resolve domains into multiple IPs, at least for now. Kind of funny. I'm literally watching a thread unfold at work related to something that sounds kind of like this related to Kafka. And I pasted in that red mine issue. I was like, maybe? <laughs> yeah. One of the most recent issues that I really like is one that... Uh, I think it was Koichi or Mame that posted the issue about dot zero question mark method being much slower than making a equal comparison of a value with zero and saying that it actually doesn't make sense to have a method 
called zero question mark that is much slower than yeah numeric zero is much slower than zero <laughs> it's not mine but it's it's still a, it's still a funny one no it was tsuyoshi savada i i think that there are many bugs in ruby that are yet to be discovered and there will be way more bugs uh related to jeet and uh stuff like that once it's uh solid and we can use it on production you should have an interview with Marcus uh, that is responsible for library called Mutant. What he does is uh, he's changing the AST of Ruby to run mutation tests, and he's forking Ruby processes while changing AST, and he constantly gets some crazy C stack-based exceptions out of Ruby because Ruby is kind of unable to sustain his idea of changing the Ruby code uh, in the runtime. Yeah, I don't think we've had a deep discussion on mutation testing since we talked to Dan Cub like in 2012. So we should probably definitely do that. Anyway, there's one other thing I wanted to talk to you about before we go to picks, and that is the Krakow Ruby Users Group. So I'm curious, how did that get started? And it sounds like you've got quite a group of people that show up. Well, Krakow is Ruby strong. Krakow Ruby user group is at least 12 years old, even, even I would say that around 15 years old. I've been running it for the last four years, I think. And uh, I would say we're just a regular Ruby user group that meets on a monthly basis, but we're kind of bigger. That's, I think that's one of the primary differences because uh, we, we meet uh, on a, once a month, 10 times a year, not including uh, the summer break. And it's usually in, in between 80 and 150 Ruby programmers per meetup. And we talk, we ask different companies to pay for beer, duh. And they usually do. But what, what makes us kind of different is that we not only ask companies to pay for a beer, but we also ask them to make a technical presentation on what they do in the company that would benefit the community. So it's not always about... Uh, directly about Ruby. Sometimes it's about databases. Sometimes it's about Docker or any other things that would give other Ruby programmers a bit of an inside knowledge on how the company operates from a technical perspective. So if they decide to change jobs and stay in Krakow, there's higher probability that they'll pick something that will actually make them happy and that will bring benefits to the employer. As we speak, there's yeah a uh, Krakow Ruby user group event starting. That's pretty awesome. We recently launched Code Fund Jobs, and during the research before that, I found out that so many companies find their new employees through uh, by helping out these uh, local user groups. It really does make a big difference for those companies. So I urge, if you are a company looking to hire, get involved with the community by supporting those groups. It, it'll help you a lot. Absolutely. There are communities in, I think, every biggest uh, city in Europe related with, if not directly with Ruby, then at least with programming or uh, databases, something like that. And uh, it's a win-win. You can get dedicated people and people can get a really interesting job that they all feel happy in. So this year we uh, we also, it's, it's, it is kind of a funny story. Uh, I was at Ruby Kaigi last year. And there is something called MRubyC. I don't know if you guys are aware of it. It's a MRuby version for even smaller devices. So there's a certain memory limit beyond uh, 
below which you can't run MRuby, but you, you actually can run MRuby C. And there's uh, one guy called Hasumi that is, uh, I don't know if I can say a specialist uh, in this area, but he's really, really good at it. And half a year ago, we invited him to visit us in Poland, and he's coming in two months. Uh, just after Ruby Kaigi, he's, he's flying to Poland and he's uh, doing workshops on programming microcontrollers with MRubyC. And it's super crazy because usually you don't do that, at least, uh, well, not in Poland. As far as I know, no one does it in Europe. No one does, no one programs microcontrollers with Ruby. And then it turns out you can do that pretty easily. So it's, it's kind of amazing. And it, if it wasn't for Krakow Ruby user group, it wouldn't be possible because you need to have uh, at least a couple of companies to back you up and you need to organize things. So, Yeah, I just, I, I love the, the meetups and so I love to, you know, shout them out and say, hey, go, go check them out. And so, yeah, if you're in the Krakow area or you can make it in, yeah, like you said, I, I guess there's one right now tonight uh, as we record this, which is the 12th of February but it looks like you also do this every month. So there should be one in March. So if you are if you can make it into Krakow for March, then definitely do it. And I also encourage people, because a lot of people I've, I've talked to, they're like, there's, there's no meetup near me. And I go look on meetup.com and it turns out that there's a meetup that's not terribly far from where they are. And so if you're looking for a Ruby meetup and you're not in Poland, go on and, and look and see if there's something near you. And if you want to visit Krakow and give a, give a talk, we can always host you. Oh, that would be fun. Yeah, it is. Uh, in May, we're having a bigger event. I wouldn't call it a conference because it, it's just Hasumi is coming from Japan and it turns out uh, there are a couple other people in Europe and Krakow that would just like to meet up. So we're running an unofficial micro-conference uh, in the middle of the week in Krakow. But it should be at least eight really solid talks. And I know uh, Piotr Solnica is going to give workshops on Rom RB and Dry RB. Hasumi is going to give workshops on MRubyC programming. And probably I'll do workshops or workshops on uh, Karavka and even Driven Architecture. So it's definitely worth visiting. Very cool. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume, you spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects, and that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them, and if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash rogues. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through TripleByte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. Anything else that we should talk about, folks, before we get to picks? All right. Uh, I, I think I saw some shaking heads, so let's do some picks. Eric, do you want to start us with picks? My pick today is my, my fellow rogue, Dave Kimura, 
who I must say is the most beautiful man I've ever seen on a podcast. <laughs> uh, he recently got a hookup, and I hope that I hope that you you talk about it. But I just want to sh- to share that Dave Kimura, you are eye candy during this podcast. So <laughs> thank you. That's my pick. Yeah, you've inspired me to see how to set up my camera so I can look pretty too. <laughs> oh, so pretty. So, so pretty and witty and awesome. All right, Andrew, you want to do some picks for us? Sure. So I have two. One is if you're on a Mac, it's a Mac keyboard shortcut. And if you're working on any Rails application and you make changes to the UI, one thing I like to do is take a screenshot of the UI change and put it in the PR for when I submit to code review. And something that makes this really easy is the key combination command control shift four and then hit the space bar and select a window and it'll take a really, it'll copy a really nice clean snapshot of your browser to your clipboard and you can just paste it straight into GitHub. The second thing I wanted to mention is the other day I submitted a PR to Eric's code fund. And something really cool that happened after that is he's using the all contributors bot. So once I submitted um, my PR and it was reviewed and accepted, my GitHub icon showed up on the readme. And I think that's a really cool way to kind of uh, encourage people to commit to open source, um, to open PRs and things like that, just to get that tiny little bit of recognition right there on the readme for the people who've helped out that repo. That sounds cool. It is cool. I'll, I'll link that plugin that I use in the show notes as well. I think that was written by Kent C. Dodds. And also, thank you for your help on that. Of course. All right, Dave, what are your picks? So my first pick is the combo between Gatorade and amoxicillin, like the Gatorade powder. So my son has strep throat. And before that, my daughter had strep throat, so I'm sure I will be getting it soon. But my son hates the bubblegum flavor of amoxicillin that's for kids. So mixing in a bit of Gatorade powder in there that masks the bubblegum taste actually worked. So now we are getting our household healthy. And then I guess to Eric's point, thank you. Uh, never thought of myself as beautiful before as you described it, but... Uh, my mesmerizing, son- mesmerizing. <laughs> the main thing that makes my video camera setup work is the Elgato CamLink 4K. Do not get it from Amazon. It is way overpriced on there, which is a first. I actually found it at my local Best Buy for the MSRP. whereas. Amazon was almost twice the price. So, and then if you have any kind of DSLR or camera, then you should be able to, if it's on the supported list on the CamLink 4's website, you should be able to uh, hook that directly into your HDMI. And then that HDMI from the CamLink 4 goes into your USB 3 on the computer. And if you use programs like Skype, Zoom, or basically any other application, then it's going to be seen as a web camera. Nice. I'm seriously looking at doing this because I've been getting into YouTube. I mentioned this before the show, but I have a Rode shotgun mic that's uh, hooked into the flash spot on top of the camera. The problem with that is that, so I have a Canon EOS M6, 
And the issue that I've had is that the, the screen flips up, but with the, the microphone there, I can't actually see it. So I can't see if I have the, the zoom lens zoomed in right or anything like that. I kind of have to just eyeball it without me sitting in the chair. And then anyway, so this way I could actually record and, and be able to see what the camera's doing on my computer. So this looks really great. Of course, I'm, I'm probably going to wind up looking at the supported list and be like, oh, it's not on there or something. I don't know. Anyway, I'm going to jump in with a few picks of my own. So one of the things that I do when I'm working is I like to use the Pomodoro technique. And when I take a break, sometimes I get up and move around and sometimes I just kind of want to do something mindless. And so I've got a couple of mindless games on my phone that I do on my breaks during the Pomodoros. One of them I think I've mentioned in the past is the Disney Heroes Battle Mode. And that that's a fun game. I've enjoyed that. My kids like to sit and watch me play it. And uh, yeah, you basically just build teams of Disney heroes and then, you know, you go earn badges and stuff. Um, the other one, and it's a really, really stupid game. So I'm just going to warn you in advance. But the thing I like about it is that um, I can kind of set the upgrades to run. And then I just check them 25 minutes later when, when the Pomodoro is done. It's one of those kind of uh, war build an army games. It's called Heckfire. And uh, it, it really is a really stupid game. But it's one of those mindless things that I can do for two minutes on my Pomodoro breaks. So um, I'm going to pick that as well. And uh, yeah, those are the picks that I guess I have today. Mache, what are your picks? I don't have any, to be honest. I even didn't know I have to prepare something. No, it's, uh, all, it's all good. It sounds no, like you're, you no, do no, beer at your meetups. What's your favorite beer? Well, I, I like I really like IPAs in general, and I can just drink any. Oh, I see Eric is not happy about it, but yeah, Eric no, needs I, to know what kind of beer you're drinking, man. No, IPAs IPAs are not for me. <laughs> I'm right there with you. Yeah, I, give me a good Hefeweizen, and I'm happy. Oh, you would be happy with an IPA during Krakow Ruby User Group meetup. Believe me. All righty. Well, if people want to find you online, where do they go? Well, they can find my GitHub. Uh, it's github.com slash Mansfeld, or they can just uh, look at my blog, which is mansfeld.pl. I, I try to write at least a blog post a month, mm-hmm. mostly about Ruby or some architecture or other related things. And uh, if you want to see me live, Krakow is the best place, but you'll be able also to to meet me uh, in Japan in April, April during uh, Ruby Kaigi. Are you coming to RailsConf? No. I, I don't know why, to be honest. Uh, it's just, uh, I always liked Japan. I've been there a couple of times, and uh, I feel that Ruby Kaigi is the most technical conference there is on Ruby, so I tend to go there. But if someone invites me, I'll probably fly for a beer. Oh, I'll buy you a beer if you show up at RailsConf. <laughs> I, can, I can try, but when is it? April, late April, I think. Yeah. Late April or early May in mm. Minneapolis. Then it would happen. In the middle of uh, April, yeah. there's Ruby Kaigi, and in May, uh, we have the Krakow event, so sorry. It's April 30th through May 2nd. Maybe I'll have to make it up to Ruby Kaigi instead. Do it. Do it. It's... It's a really, really, really amazing experience. All right, folks. Well, I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up and sign us out. And we will be back next week. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. 
Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. 